Good morning, Village Church. How's everyone doing? Good. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, this morning, we're going to be wrapping up our time in the book of Jonah in the series we've been calling God's Heart for the Hardest People. So as we move through the book, we've been watching how God moves towards difficult and hard people. And it's been a great series. We've seen some incredible things, and, I'm, and I trust that we're going to see some more of them today. Sound good? So at this point in the book of Jonah, Jonah has finally made it to and through Nineveh. He's called out against the great city, saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And in response to this preaching, there is repentance. In Jonah's day, the people in Nineveh were the hardest people. Nineveh is the capital city of one of the most evil empires in all of history, the Assyrian Empire. They were known for their violence and their brutality. But in chapter 3, the entire city repents. This is the type of stuff that we pray for, right? This is revival. This is best-case scenario. And that's exactly what makes verse 1 of chapter 4 so jarring. Let's read it again. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So when you're, you're reading the Bible, keep in mind that almost every time you see the word but, there's some sort of contrast that's taking place. And here, the contrast is between God and Jonah. Chapter 3 has God turning away from his anger, but God turning away from his anger is exactly what makes Jonah mad. Further, the English reading of this verse doesn't do it justice. Literally, this verse translated to read, it became evil to Jonah, a great evil. So where God saw it was good to give mercy, Jonah saw it as evil. And the question of the chapter is who's right? We get more information on what's exactly, exactly wrong with Jonah in, in verse 2. So let's read it. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country, that this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now keep in mind that up until this point in the entire book, there's been no mention of why Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. We've assumed it, but it hasn't been explicitly stated until right here. Here we get a vision into Jonah's heart from Jonah himself. The reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh was because he knew God. Maybe he knew something about God that we tend to forget. He knew that God's first choice for Nineveh wasn't punishment. It was mercy. I think Jonah knew something that we can tend to forget. He knew that God was gracious, God was merciful, that he was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. But he knew that it was that God wasn't just these things, but he also preferred these things. That's why Jonah didn't want to give Nineveh the chance to repent, because he knew that, God, that it was in God's heart not to bring down judgment if he didn't have to. And this is not just for Nineveh. Our God is a God of both mercy and justice, but Scripture is clear that he has a preference. His preference is mercy. Just let that sink in for a second. Because God, God's heart towards us is one of compassion first. Last week we talked about how closely the book of Jonah mirrors the parable of the prodigal son. 
And there's this really cool portion of the story that where it says that while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him. And it's a great picture because it shows us the heart of the father and towards the hardness of his son. It means that ever since his son has left the father, he had been scanning the horizon waiting for him to come home. And when the father sees him, he runs to him. He didn't, he didn't roll his eyes and go back inside. This is a father that loves his son, and his earnest desire was to forgive him and welcome him home. This is the God that Jonah knew God to be, a God that loves to show mercy and forgiveness. And if you need any more evidence of this, you don't need to look any further than in the gospel. We're in the gospel. God, while we were still a long way off, seeing our needs, seeing our rebellion, seeing our wayward wandering, sent his son to die on the, on the cross for our sin, to die on the cross for our wanderings, so that when you draw near, there's no anger. There's no punishment. There's only grace and celebration. Jesus took the punishment for our sins from the Father so that he can offer mercy to all who would accept it. This is the foundation for every offer of God's mercy for Jonah, for Nineveh, and for us. So if you're sitting here just recounting and recalling all of the sin or all of the choices that you've made or all the things that you've done that just stain you with shame and embarrassment, and if you're thinking right now that you've gone too far and God is frustrated or he's angry or he's fed up, that you've done something so bad that has changed his heart towards you, this passage says that you haven't. God's preference for you is mercy still. It's compassion. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So maybe it's time to come home. And this is what we love about God. And what's crazy about this is that this is what Jonah hates about him. Jonah's reaction to the grace and deliverance is even more surprising when you consider that, consider that Jonah was the recipient of that same grace and deliverance in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he was the one that was rebelling against God. He was the one whose life was in danger. He was the one that needed to be saved. He was the one that was thrown overboard, and the grace of God came in the, in the form of a big fish to deliver Jonah for certain death. This is what he praised God for in chapter 2. So we know Jonah is not anti-grace. He's not anti-deliverance. He's not anti-mercy. It's not that Jonah despises the mercy and grace and compassion and steadfast love of God. He just thinks God's being a bit, a bit too promiscuous with it. Jonah wants God to be more selective in who he chooses to pour out his mercy on. In Jonah's mind, grace should come with qualifiers, and Jonah has run the numbers, and Nineveh did not make the cut. Several reasons commentators have offered as to why Jonah feels this way. The first and most common reason, as many scholars cite for, the, cite for the reason that he feels this anger towards God, is indicated in how Jonah describes God. When Jonah is airing his anger, he throws God revelation of himself back at God. When he addresses God in verse 2, he's not rattling off some random list of God's character traits. This is a, a common formula used to refer to God because it's a common formula that God uses to refer to himself. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, when God is renewing his covenant with his people, he says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
This is the first occurrence of this description of God. It's how God revealed himself to the nation of Israel. And so this is the background Jonah is evoking in verse 3. Additionally, when we look and, and see how he refers to God in verse 3, he says, Oh Lord, this is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the special name for God that's only used by his people. And these two points work together to create this, this tone that helps us understand a potential source for Jonah's anger. Jonah is mad because his God is giving his mercy to his enemies. God's mercy and grace and faithfulness was great as long as it was for Jonah's people. Jonah's national pride made him feel more worthy than the people of Nineveh. Another reason offered is that Jonah's, for Jonah's inconsistency with regard to the grace of God is that though he felt the way that he did because the people of Nineveh were brutal, savage people. And just by virtue of them being Assyrians, they were less worthy of grace. Or there's an appeal to fairness and justice. They were guilty of great evil, far worse things than Jonah would ever dare to do. So because of that, Jonah's moral superiority, superiority made him more worthy of mercy than they were. And all of these different perspectives display some deep error in Jonah's heart. If he thinks his national identity makes him better, he's a nationalist. If he thinks his race or ethnicity makes him better, he's racist. If he thinks his moral achievements make, he's, make him better, he's a legalist. It could be a mix of any of or all of these things, and we don't know for sure exactly what it is that he thought made him more worthy of grace. And I think that's a good thing, because in instances like this, we would probably use it to excuse ourselves. The temptation is to think, well, well Jonah was a nationalist. I'm not a nationalist, so this isn't something that I struggle with. Or, or Jonah was racist, and I'm not racist, so this is not something I have to think about. Or Jonah was a legalist, and I don't struggle with legalism, so this isn't something I have to be on the lookout for. We can read a passage like this and see where Jonah's wrong and think to ourselves, that's not me. But because it's left open, we're forced to consider the inclination in all of our hearts to point to an endless amount of things that make us feel like we're more worthy than grace, of grace than everyone else or invent several reasons why others are intrinsically less worthy. We can get really creative in finding things that make us feel better, like we're, feel like we're better than the people we don't like. And maybe that's the reason that we consider the hardest people hard in the first place, is because on some level we see them as less worthy. And we see the outcome of this way of thinking clearly in the life of Jonah. He, he told us. He said he knew God wanted to show them mercy. And because Jonah didn't think they were worthy, he ran the other way. So if we think that for some reason we are more worthy of mercy or for some reason others are less worthy, when God moves toward these people in compassion, we'll typically run in the other direction. Because we've done our assessment and we've determined that they're not worth the time. God's move of compassion toward the people of Jonah, uh, toward the people Jonah feels not worthy, triggers him. And we'll see how, how deeply he's triggered in verse 3. It says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is so angry with what God has done that the life that he celebrated God saving in chapter 2 means nothing. 
He's so angry that he's lost all motivation to live. Jonah has found his identity in his race or nationality or morality or whatever pedestal that he stood on that made him feel better than everyone else. And it was so important to who he was that when God acts in a way that makes those things irrelevant, he's so offended that he sees no longer any reason to live. This is idolatry. Jonah is bound to the idol in his heart of superiority or even justice. And as a result, God's offer for radical mercy is making him despondent. He's going to want to die two more times before the book is over. The feeling that that Jonah has that he is in some way more worthy of mercy is also making Jonah feel miserable when God doesn't agree. And God wants to set him free from this. His heart is sick, and God will address it in verse 4 with a question. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? It's It's a simple question. Jonah is angry, but is his anger justified? Jonah's feeling the anger we feel when the expectation of judgment or justice is not met. The anger we feel when wicked leaders give bad people pardons. We, we know this feeling. I'm pretty confident everyone in this room has felt this feeling. This causes 96% of the fights in, amongst my kids. Someone feels that something has happened that's not fair, and they get angry because of it. Jonah's looking at God and how he's dealing with Nineveh and saying the same thing. He knows God is gracious, and right now, that's part of God's problem. He's not being fair. In his mind, God is guilty of a great crime if the evil of the Ninevites is just disregarded. And so the question we see God asking is whether or not Jonah should be mad. And so the question we see God asking is how he feels, is it correct? Because this is where the heart of Jonah and where the heart of God start to diverge. Now, we don't get a direct response to the question here, but the presence of the question shows us something. It shows that God cares about how Jonah feels about the people he preaches to. He didn't just want Jonah to go where he tells him to go and do what he told him to do. He wants Jonah to feel the right way about the people he was sent to. There's a gulf between how God feels about the city of Nineveh and how Jonah feels about it. Like Pastor David said last week, even though Jonah is within the gates of Nineveh, his heart is still on a boat heading to Tarshish. In Jonah's heart, he's still running away from God. So the book, it, the book doesn't end in chapter 3. Jonah, the rebellious prophet, finally comes to his senses that God uses him to cause an entire city to repent. This sounds like it should be mission accomplished. But it's not, because God cares just as much for the heart of Jonah as he does for the city of Nineveh. I think the lesson is clear. God not only wants us to preach to the lost, he wants us to care for the lost as well. We see through the entire story, the obstacle that stands between the city of Nineveh and repentance, it's not God. It's not the hardness of the hearts of the people in the city. It's not the evil leaders in the city. It's not political barriers preventing prophets to enter the city. The main obstacle standing between Nineveh and repentance is the uncaring reluctance of the man God wanted to use to rescue them. The hardest people in the book are not the sailors or the captain or the king or the Ninevites. The hardest person in the book is Jonah. 
So just deepen that. Because what if the main obstruction to the grace of God flowing into our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, is us? Through this entire book, it has been Jonah that's been the problem. So if we're looking at the book of Jonah and trying to figure out what God's heart is towards the hardest people, we have to look to see God's heart towards Jonah because the hardest person in the story is him. And in the remainder of the book, God is like a surgeon, carefully and precisely cutting through Jonah's heart, literally wielding creation, plants, insects, weather to save him from himself. All to help Jonah answer the question he asked him in verse 4 do you do well to be angry? God cares too deeply for Jonah and for us to just allow us to build our lives on things that will fail us and make us miserable. So let's read it, verses 5 and 6. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, made it, made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And here we see Jonah leaving the city and making a booth. This is a makeshift shelter with rocks and branches and twigs, right? He's sitting in his shelter watching the city, waiting for fire and smoke and destruction. But while he's waiting for God to destroy the city, God sends a plant. And it says that God sent the plant, plant to save him from his discomfort. Now what's really interesting about the word choice here is that it can also be translated as to save him from his evil. This makes it clear that now the Ninevites aren't the only one that needs to be saved. And ironically, God uses a plant to get to the root of the problem. While Jonah's waiting for God to destroy, God is active and saving. So God sends a plant to grow overnight. This plant grows and it spreads its leaves and provides a shade for Jonah for the entire next day. And now finally something good happens to Jonah. After the storm, after the near-death experience, after being swallowed by the big fish, this plant must have felt like a small victory. Nineveh hasn't been turned to ash yet, but at least he can wait to see it in the shade. And so he gets attached to this plant and says it makes him exceedingly glad. But all of this is just a setup because look what happens next. Verses 7 through 9. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do, very, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The plant that made Jonah exceedingly glad is killed by a worm that God sent, and now Jonah has no shade. The one thing that he had going for him was just taken away. Plus, it's really hot. And to make matters worse, God sends a scorching east wind, and all of this together results in Jonah getting heat exhaustion. And now for the second time, Jonah wants to die. But at this point, he's ready for God to ask him the same question. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? This is the exact same question asked in verse 4, just reframed. In verse 4, God asked, do you do well to be angry about Nineveh? Now God's asking if Jonah does well to be angry about a plant. And Jonah's response is yes, yes, 
that it's right for him to be angry, angry enough to die. And now God has him exactly where he wants him because this whole scene with the heat and the plant and the worm and the wind was constructed by God to show Jonah exactly where the inconsistencies in his heart lie. And we see the next eight words of verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant. This is the first and only thing Jonah has cared about in this entire book, and it's a plant. Jonah felt something for the plant, not the sailors, not the Ninevites, a plant. And it's clear why he had pity on this plant. It's because he gave him shade. If that plant was anywhere else, he wouldn't care about it. If that plant had leaves that weren't big enough to provide shade, he wouldn't care about it. The only reason he cares is because this plant gave him something he needed. This is selfishness, but it's a starting point. A starting point for God to teach Jonah about God's heart heart towards people. Let's read it, verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. These two verses give some incredible insight into the heart of God, but you have to understand how they work. It's a super straightforward form of logic based on a simple premise. People are greater than plants. And I put it on a slide so we don't forget it. This means that it's a, it's a harder act for Jonah to have compassion for this plant. That's the greater thing. That's the more challenging thing. That's the more difficult thing. It's hard for him to feel attachment and compassion for this plant, right? When I pull weeds, I feel nothing. There's no sadness, just dead inside. It's hard for me to find compassion in my heart for plants. I don't look out through the window and watch my neighbor cut his grass while tears are rolling down my face. It's hard to feel bad for grass. So if I can somehow manage to muster some level of pity for plants, how much more should I be able to muster a pity for people? The question is, if Jonah cares so deeply about a plant, why can't he understand why God cares so deeply about a city? So as I was, as I was preparing... I was going through this and I was just asking myself, are there, are there people that I dislike so strongly that if God chose to show them mercy, I would be angry about it? Are there people that I want to see God destroy? Because that's, that's Jonah's problem, right? There are people that he wants God to destroy because he feels such strong hatred for them. And I couldn't think of anyone or a group of people that I hated so much that I wanted God to destroy. Granted, I've never been a victim of the violence of the Assyrians. Jonah had a front row seat to it all. Maybe if I had experiences like him, I'd feel a bit differently. But what starts to bring this closer to home is this last contrast between the heart of God and the heart of Jonah in verses 10 and 11. Jonah pities the plant, and God says, should I not pity the city? The clear implication is that Jonah does not pity Nineveh. And that's not, that's not really a surprise. The criticism God has for Jonah isn't about what Jonah has for the Ninevites. 
He didn't say you hate them and you shouldn't hate them or you despise them and you shouldn't despise them. God's criticism for Jonah isn't, for, isn't, what, isn't what for Jonah has for the city. It's about what Jonah doesn't have for the city. He lacks something for these people. He lacks pity. And the word here for pity could be better understood as concern or compassion. So the thing God criticizes Jonah for is that Jonah isn't concerned for the city of Nineveh, but is concerned for things of lesser value like plants. And the reason that stops me in my track is because I don't think we actively hate anyone around us. I do think we tend to be indifferent, though. And this passage says that's the problem. We can get caught up and be concerned about tons of lesser things, none of them bad or evil, just lesser. Each day comes with it a new list of things that we have to do or want to do. And how many of those things have just crowded out the concern that we should have for the people around us? So for those of us that don't actively hate the people around us, maybe God is trying to move us away from just being unconcerned. Maybe the step we need to take to more closely align our heart with God's is to simply start caring. But how? How do we move ourselves to care or care more? I think we see something that might help. Looking at verse 10, God tells Jonah, you didn't, you didn't labor for this plant. You didn't, you didn't make it grow. You knew the plant for a day, and you felt pity for it. This is implicitly contrasted with the heart of God. God is saying, I created the people of Nineveh. And in an outflow of common grace, he cared for them. From his hand came food and water. He caused the rain to fall and feed their crops, and he cultivated their animals. And in light of all that God has done for the city, why is it that, who is Jonah to say that God should not have compassion for them? This is incredible insight into the heart of God, and it shows us that his compassion towards us isn't reluctant. When he extends mercy and grace, he's doing it with a heart that longs for people because he made them. This is the heart Jonah is invited into, and it teaches us that Christian compassion doesn't start with how we feel about them. It starts with how God feels about them. And there's this divine attachment to his creation simply because they were created. Notice in verse 11. Whenever Nineveh is mentioned, it's referred to as, as that great city or just the city or the people of Nineveh. But here, when God refers to the city, he says more than 120,000 persons. It's jarring because it seems like it's out of place. So what has been up to this point, a hazy mob of sinners, are now individually counted as persons. And here's the difference. The older I get, the more I realize I don't like crowds. They're just really annoying, right? They take things that should be fun and make them not fun. They take things that shouldn't take long and make them take long. And because of this, we'll go to great lengths to avoid them. My family drives by in and out and if there's a crowd, we just keep on going to Chick-fil-A. <laughs> when I see crowds, I get frustrated. But when Jesus saw crowds in Matthew 9:36, he had compassion. Jesus saw crowds and still saw them as people. For us, when persons become crowds, they tend to stop being persons. 
They're the homeless, or the liberals, or the conservatives, or the immigrants, or you can fill in any blank of any category of person. Whoever they are, once you lump them into a crowd, it's easy to stop caring. Here, God is reminding Jonah that the city has value because there are persons in the city. And not only Nineveh, this is true for Irvine, and Lake Forest, and Mission Viejo, and Orange, and Costa Mesa. And God looks at our cities and says the same thing. How could you be concerned with things that are lesser? Should I not pity them? All have value because they are filled with people, people with souls, people made in the image of God. And because of that, they are treasured by him. I think the first thing we can do to move us away from our apathy towards the hardest people is to stop seeing them as problems and instead start seeing them as people. People that God longs to show mercy to. And the closing question is if our God cares for each of them, shouldn't we also care? And that's where the book ends. It's kind of abrupt. There's, there's no response from Jonah because his response is not the response that matters. The question here is left hanging because it's a question for us each individually to answer for ourselves. What matters is how we will respond. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to join God in his concern and compassion for our cities? Or are we just going to sit outside like Jonah waiting for God to judge him? God was so concerned for the city of Nineveh that he gave them every opportunity to repent. But he was also just as concerned for the heart of Jonah. That he literally moved creation to rescue him from the evil apathy in his heart for the hardest people. And I think this brings us to our good news for this morning. The God that pursues the hardest people is a God that softens the hardness of his own people so that both can rejoice in the grace found at the cross. God wants us to join him in the care for the cities in which we live. He's inviting us into what he will do with or without us. I think the book of Jonah shows us that if we truly enjoy the grace of God, we wouldn't be content to keep it to ourselves. We'll go with it to the hardest places, to the most difficult people, in the confidence that he will save because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and just, just confess our inconsistencies. Our, the inconsistencies in our own hearts when we enjoy the grace that you generously give us, but then hold it tight to ourselves. Father, we confess the inability that we have to make ourselves care about something or someone. And we confess that in hopes that, that you would create that for us that where there's apathy, that you would create concern. Where there's disregard, you'd, you'd create compassion. Where we see them as enemies, Father, you would show us that they're, that they're people with souls and you're God that longs to save them. And so I pray that 
and the busyness of our life and all the things that we have to do that we would, that we would slow down and see the people that we interact with not just to, as obstacles to the things that we need to get through, but as people that you've put in our path. That we don't lose the sight that, they're, that they are persons, persons that, that you've created, that you've formed, that you've fashioned, that you've cultivated and grown and that you long for them. I pray that that would burn in us. I pray that we'd feel the weight of a loving and compassionate God that desires to save. I pray that we'd go out and we'd bring that to everyone that we interact with. In the Son's name we pray. Amen.